We're moving deeper into this season of joy-filled preparation as we make our lives ready for Christ's arrival. And this year, our kind of aids for the journey are the songs of Christmas. Last week, we uh, examined the classic carol, God Rest Ye Merry Gentlemen. Or as we may want to retranslate it, uh, God Keep You Strong, Gentle Folk. It's a beautiful reminder because of Jesus, we are never victims. Because He has overcome, we can overcome. He makes us mighty. And He calls us to use this grace-given power for the sake of others. Satan has been defeated and Jesus rests us merry. And that is something worth singing about. Amen? Amen. Now be honest, how many of you actually sang that song out loud at least once this past week? Raise your hands. Oh, nice. Okay, okay. This is, a, this is your discipleship challenge because how we worship shapes our mindset, our community, our character. So we're going to look at another Christmas song this week, uh, Joy to the World. It's well known, it's beloved, it might be a little bit easier to sing. And it was written by a man named Isaac Watts, whose passion for worship kind of overflowed even from his earliest days. You see, Watts grew up as a pastor's kid, and he often struggled when he was young with the kind of detached emotionless singing of God's people when they gathered for worship. He once complained this to his dad, to see the dull indifference, the negligent and thoughtless air that sits upon the faces of a whole assembly while the psalm is on their lips, might even be tempted, might even tempt a charitable observer to suspect the fervency of their inward religion. In other words, They're so dead and lifeless. Do they really believe this stuff? Is it really good news to them? And tired of his belly aching, uh, his dad challenged his son to write something better. And English worship was forever changed. You see, Watts would go on to become a pastor, a theologian, an expert logician. uh, But he's best remembered as a songwriter, writing thousands of hymns. And I don't know this for certain, but I suspect his life verse was Colossians 3.16, which says this, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving, thankfulness in your hearts toward God. This verse would kind of serve as a life map for uh, Watts' endeavors. His first published work was a work of original music titled Hymns and Spiritual Songs, which contained such classics, if you know this one, as When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. From there, Watts tackled, like Eugene Peterson did in our day, a modern and poetic English paraphrase of the Psalms, which he titled The Psalms of David Imitated in the Language of the New Testament. He explained to skeptical readers this. He said, The Psalms ought to be translated in such a manner as we have reason to believe David would have composed them if he lived in our day and naturally accommodated to the various occasions of Christian life. 
He would go on to say, when the psalmist describes religion by fear of God, I have often joined faith and love to it. Where he speaks of pardon of sin through the mercies of God, I've added the merits of a Savior. Where he talks of sacrificing goats and bulls, I rather mention the sacrifice of Christ, the Lamb of God. When he attends the ark with shouting into Zion, I sing of the ascension of my Savior into heaven and his presence in his church on the earth. Where he promises abundance of wealth, honor, and long life, I've changed some of these typical blessings for grace, glory, and life eternal which are brought to light in the Gospel and promised in the New Testament. You see, in a time when Christians only sang the Psalms verbatim from the Old Testament, it was hard to overstate the controversy that Watts stirred up in the English-speaking church. At least initially, most of his work was met with concern, if not open contempt. But he helped blaze the trail and he helped... Teach us how to sing praise to God with our own voice and words. But enough of the history lesson. I want us to actually reflect on the text of this week's Christmas song, Joy to the World. Uh, So you guys have sermon notes that have the lyrics on them. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature sing. I want you guys to take a moment to kind of jumpstart your own reflection. We're trying something new this Advent. We're having a participatory element here. So I want you to take a minute and write down which line of this song that you find most striking. And then see if you can articulate why. There's a spot to do so on the back of your sermon notes. Uh, so I'm going to give you just a few seconds Jot down your line, and then we're going to have one or two of you share. So take a minute, read over the words, what strikes you, and why. you have an answer to share. Ooh, all the way in the back. Jason. I really like that uh, last stanza there. Uh, he makes he rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love. Um, I wonder how he does that. I like to think about that. He's not a normal king that rules with coercion and violence. He rules with truth, grace, and love. And He's still making the nations do things. How does he do that? Mm. It's amazing to me. Good insight. Okay, Donna, you're up next. I saw your hand. I really, really am touched by why fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains 
repeat the sounding joy. There was so much going on in the universe that nature literally could not be quiet. Yeah, amen. I saw one more up here. I think it was Rob. I'd have to say, too, the, the line, while fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains, because nature responds to him. It reminds me of Jesus calming the storm. Mm. So he has authority over those. Yeah. Amen. Well, thank you guys for your willingness to participate. I know it takes some courage to not just hear a message, but interact with it. So I appreciate your openness. So now, Joy to the World is clearly an Advent carol. It celebrates Christ's coming. But I have to ask, as you've read over this song, is this song primarily about Jesus' first coming or his second? Raise your hands. How many of you think Joy to the World is mostly about Jesus' first coming, his birth in Bethlehem? Okay, I see a few hands. What about this? How many of you think it's largely about his second coming? Raise your hands. Okay, a few more. A lot of you didn't vote. That's okay. You can decide later. So Joy to the World, it's drawn directly from Watts' paraphrase of Psalm 98. In the ESV, the psalm begins with these words. O sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. And then the psalmist goes on and he calls God's people gathered from both Israel and the nations to exuberant worship. He says in verse 4, Make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre. I think that's a harp. And with the lyre and the sound of melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn, make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. Uh, Watts rendition here is absolutely lovely titling it psalm 98 part one praise for the gospel watt transcribes david's words into his own poetry he says this to our almighty maker god new honors be addressed his salvation shines abroad and makes the nations blessed he spoke the word to abraham first his truth fulfills the grace The Gentiles make his name their trust and learn his righteousness. Let the whole world, earth, his love proclaim with all her different tongues and spread the honors of his name in melody and songs. You see, the emphasis here is on the revelation of God's salvation. God has acted to show the world his goodness and power, his heart, it beats. Grace, his passion is to rescue his sin-sick and wayward children, those trampled down and oppressed. He's eager to prove his unending love and devotion to his people, Israel, and through that faithfulness to bring blessing 
and life to all nations and lands, indeed to the very corners of creation. And as the psalm continues, the the natural world is invited to join in the chorus, to herald the coming of Israel and the world's true King, the Lord Himself on the planet, arrived to make all things new and beautiful, good, just, and true once again. We read this at the end of Psalm 98, 7-9. Let the sea roar in all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands, let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord. For He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. It would take Watts four stanzas of poetry to paraphrase these last three verses. And he titles the section, The Messiah's Coming and Kingdom. And his words ought to be familiar to you by now. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her King. Let every heart prepare Him room. And heaven and nature sing. And the rest you know or can read from your sermon notes. So, this psalm and this carol, they bring to mind for me two New Testament texts in particular. The first is the simple announcement that Jesus taught His disciples to proclaim. And this is how we read it in Luke 10.9. Say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. We wrestled with what that statement actually means this week in our Wednesday night men's group. And the first aspect that we identified is that God has come near. The God who made us and loves us. That God whom because we can't see Him with our eyes, we often accuse of being distant and uncaring and inattentive. That God has come to us in a way that we can perceive Him and understand Him and receive Him. The Lord Himself comes to us in Jesus, enfleshed in our humanity. And the Lord, He's come not just to say hi. He's come to exercise authority. To reverse the curse of sin. To to put the world back into order. There is great joy too in this announcement because the Lord has come to reestablish His authority on the earth. To to dethrone evil, sin, and death and to make things on the earth as they are in heaven. The Kingdom of God has come near to us. The other text that the song reminds me of is Romans 8, 19-24. In it, Paul writes this. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. 
And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we await eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. You see, joy to the world is a groaning creation song of just kind of ecstatic relief and rejoicing. It was because of humanity's failure and rebellion that the natural order was vandalized. It was subjected to frustration in the first place. Plagued by scarcity and death, the earth descended into violent competition, red in tooth and claw. Paul calls this creation's bondage to corruption. But chaos and destruction don't have the final word. To channel another beloved Christmas carol, A thrill of hope The weary world rejoices For yonder breaks A new and glorious morn We're not going to keep saying that's a big song. The Lord's coming and the Savior's reign. It's, it's good news for the cosmos. While upheaval first came through humanity, so through humanity would come redemption. Specifically, the revelation of the Son of God, that's Jesus, and the sons of God, the men and women, boys and girls, who are being transformed and will be glorified by Christ's self-giving Spirit and His unquenchable life. So to return to our earlier question, joy to the world is clearly an Advent carol, but which coming does it celebrate? I find it interesting that Paul uses the metaphor of birth pains there in Romans. He says creation groans as it waits for a new world to be born. But the first signs of this new world's coming was actually a woman in the throes of labor giving birth to a child in the little Judean town of Bethlehem. You see, in my estimation, joy to the world is a song of exultation that began at Jesus' birth, but hits its full force and intensity when our resurrected Lord again comes in power. When He comes to judge, as the psalmist says, the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. It's a carol of Christ's second coming as much as it is a song that remembers His first. And I love this carol's just kind of enthusiasm and how it lifts up our spirits, but the song seeks to do more than lift us up. It petitions us to respond. And the first response it invites us to, we see in verse 1, Let the earth receive her king and let every heart prepare him room. To me, those are the song's most striking lines and I want us to camp here for a bit. Uh, We must admit that as Americans, um, receiving one's king lands strangely on our ears. Right? We're a self-governing people. We have no earthly king. We want no earthly king. And our last king that we did have, we were kind of uh, rebellious and uncharitable. 
Uh, sorry, but not sorry, George III. I'm going to stop there. I'm a history nerd. I have strong opinions about English monarchs, apparently. Uh, long story short, we are ill-equipped to receive a king, even if it is the Lord Jesus. So how do we go about doing so? Well, it says, let every heart prepare him room. So I want you to consider, how do you prepare room for Jesus in your heart? I want you to take another minute and kind of collect your thoughts. On your sermon notes, jot that down. We sing this line with gusto, but how do we live it? What do you understand it to mean to prepare room for Jesus in your life? So stop and jot down how you might do that, and we'll come back together in like 60 seconds. How are you processing this? What do you think it means to prepare him room in your heart? Mary Price. Well, I think it's uh, surrender. Mm. To not have um, your own agenda, but to understand it's a choice in everything that we do and say. We have to make room for his spirit to uh, choose him and to trust him. It's a choice. Amen. Thank you, Mary. I can just have you preach the rest. That's right on. Yeah. As I've considered this question this week, I've actually, as I've turned to the scripture for insight, I sense God giving us this answer kind of on three different Time horizons. So let me explain. What did it, how would one prepare room in their heart for Jesus when he first arrived? When he was born of a virgin in the village of Bethlehem. We read this in Luke 2.7. And she, Mary, gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the guest room. You see, the key phrase there is there was no place for them in the guest room, in the the kataluma in Greek, in the attached room that every Israelite home had for the sole purpose of receiving guests and entertaining strangers. It was in the kataluma, in the guest room, 
that you put up out-of-towners and visiting relatives and travelers passing through who needed a place to crash for the night. You see, the guest room was a place of warmth and welcome, but also of formality and propriety and distance. There were certain unspoken rules that governed that space. Clear distinctions were made between the guest room and the family's private living quarters. Well, when Jesus, heaven and earth's Savior, shows up to engage with us, there's no room for Him in the guest rooms of our lives. He's not the sort of figure you can put up on the downstairs couch as if He's a buddy from college who's a traveling musician who's in town to play a gig. Now this is Jesus. This is the One who rules the world with truth and grace. He cannot be fit in at the edges of your life or welcomed from a safe distance. Either He must be invited into the inner sanctum of one's home, soul, and existence, or He must be rejected and cast out into the cold. There's no other way to parse it. To prepare Him room, I think first and foremost, means to make space to welcome Jesus into the very center of your life. Now we can fast forward to Jesus' life and ministry. In that time, what did preparing room for Him look like? Well, we read later in Luke 10, after this, Jesus appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him two by two into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And whatever house you enter, he tells to his disciples, first say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. But if not, it will return to you. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you, heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of of God has come near to you. You see, to prepare room for Jesus in the days of His ministry, one had to be open to receive whom He might send and what He might bring. One had to be open to receive His people, open to receive His peace. Receiving Jesus meant sitting across a table and sharing a meal with His followers other damaged men and women caught up and made new by His grace. It meant opening yourself to His healing, to Jesus repairing your brokenness, to gently exposing and tenderly purging the rot from your life. It meant opening yourself up to receive life-altering news that would change the very trajectory of your life. And all of this was, was precursor to the ultimate reception, which was receiving Jesus Himself. He sent His people to the towns that He was going to visit in person. Jesus would visit your neighborhood. He would meet you face to face. He would forge a friendship and a relationship with you. He would beckon you to follow Him ultimately to the cross and through it to the empty tomb. But for those who were not open to receive, 
or to open to the change that such a reception would result in, Luke writes this in verse 10. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. So to prepare him room means being open to receive Jesus' peace, His people, His healing, His life-altering news, His very presence. Finally, let's fast forward to the end. To Jesus' triumphant return, which we're still looking forward to when He comes to rule and reign on the earth establishing His messianic kingdom at the end of the age. What will it look like to prepare Him room then? Well, I'd venture a word of warning. If you refuse to prepare room for Jesus in your life until He comes undisputed in His glory, it may be too late. The human heart tends to calcify in its rebellion And a time for choosing passes. Wait too long and you become part and parcel of the evil and injustice that Jesus arrives to undo. And I said a few weeks ago that to me, one of the most astounding things about Scripture's teaching about a millennial kingdom, about Jesus arriving one day in person to establish a government on the earth, is how many people would actually reject a society defined by goodness and kindness and justice. And maybe that is why the line uh, is in the Joy to the World song where he says, He makes the nations prove the glories of His righteousness and the wonders of His love. You see, Psalm 2, it addresses the same events Joy to the World does, but it does so from the perspective of the resistors, of those who've prepared no room for Jesus' presence or leadership in their lives, those who've refused, as Mary said, to surrender. And here's what David writes. He says, Why are the nations so angry? Why do they waste their time with futile plans? The kings of the earth prepare for battle. The rulers plot together against the Lord and against His anointed one. Let us break their chains, they cry, and free ourselves from slavery to God. But the one who rules in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then in anger He rebukes them, terrifying them with His fierce fury. For the Lord declares, I have placed my chosen king on the throne in Jerusalem and on my holy mountain. The king proclaims the Lord's decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Only ask and I will give you the nations as your inheritance, the whole earth as your possession. You will break them with an iron rod and smash them like clay pots. And then he concludes this way. Now then, you kings, act wisely. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with reverent fear and rejoice with trembling. Submit to God's royal Son. 
or he will become angry and you will be destroyed in the midst of all your activities. For his anger, his anger against injustice flares up in an instant. But what joy for all who take refuge in him. Joy to the world is a song we learn to sing in the present so that we might heed its invitation. A new world is being born. The manger was an announcement. The cross, an empty tomb, its proof and promise. But one day, if we're to herald the arrival of Jesus' restored world with singing, we're going to herald the arrival of His restored world with singing, we have to prepare, even now, Jesus' room in our hearts. And to prepare Him room means that now in the present we must learn to trust Him. And again, as Mary said, willingly submit to His authority in our lives. So is there space in your heart for Jesus? Is there any room for Him in your lifestyle or in the center of your life's goals and ambitions? Make space for Jesus. And if you make space, are you, are you actually open to receive the people, healing, and change that He will bring? Any friendship you have requires vulnerability and will transform you. And friendship with Jesus even more so. Prepare your heart to receive. And finally, if Jesus is our rightful King, if He is the one who will heal what is broken and will untwist what is twisted in us and in our world, exercise right now your ability to trust and willingly submit to His leadership in your life. You see, on many things, God's Word is crystal clear on how He intends His grace-saved people to live. Are you heeding His leadership? Are you being faithful in what He's already called you to walk in? Let every heart prepare Him room so that we might be part of the heaven and nature that sings at His arrival. And the last thing I want to leave you with is a question to reflect upon this week. How does joining in the praise of creation change us, the worshiper? Singing joy to the world, it reminds us that the Gospel is about more than just my salvation, my forgiveness, God dealing with my sin. It's the hinge upon which history and creation has turned. And joy to the world, it's not simply about how Jesus saved me, but it's about how His kingdom has come and will triumph over the whole world and will change the world and make it new. Your assignment is to go into this week singing this song. That's why we're giving you the words in your hands. And as you sing, get caught up and find your place in the song of all creation. And let it shape you and lift you and direct you to the future that God intends for those who love Him and are loved by Him. Amen?
Amen. Well, let's go out singing a few stanzas of this song as our response. Dear God, Lord, we ask that you would help us prepare our hearts for your gentle and your gracious arrival. We also ask that you would prepare our hearts to receive you, not simply as friend, but as king, as the one who will fix this broken world and untwist what is twisted and restore beauty and goodness and grace. And for this we sing to you in Jesus' name, amen.